welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and greetings I GBAT researcher and assistant editor at IMPRI Impact and Policy Research Institute Prabhau Evang Niti Anusandhan Sanstan Nayi Delhi extend my warmest welcome to you all to IMPRI #webpolicytalk Today we are gathered for a special lecture on governance challenges in India's small towns by Dr. Tariq Tachil as a part of the state of cities #cityconversations This event is organized by Center for Habitat, Urban and Regional Studies, IMPRI Impact and Policy Research Institute, New Delhi. Now, let me take this moment to introduce the gathering. As the moderator of today's session, we have with us Dr. Saumyadeep Chattopadhyay. He is the associate professor at Viswabharati Santaniketan and a visiting senior fellow at IMPRI, New Delhi. we welcome you sir our esteemed speaker for today is dr tariq tachil he is the director of the center for the advanced study of india and the associate professor of political science and mandanlal sobdi associate professor for the study of contemporary india in the university of pennsylvania we feel honored to have you with us sir welcome to the session Moving to our discussions for today, we are delighted to have with us Dr. Devapriya Chakrabarti. She is an ESRC postdoctoral fellow seat at the University of Manchester. We welcome you, ma'am. We are pleased to also be joined by Mr. Samir Onhale. He is the Joint Commissioner, Department of Municipal Administration, Government of Maharashtra. We welcome you, sir. Now I invite our moderator Dr Saumyadeep Chattopadhyay to initiate the lecture with his opening remarks and to proceed with the lecture by Dr Tariq Tachil We look forward to learning from our esteemed gathering thank you Thank you thank you GB and uh, and good evening namaskar from kolkata so on behalf of the center for habitat urban regional studies impri i once again welcome you all to this city conversation series and uh, this city conversation series engages in uh, dialogues and debates on key challenges and opportunities regarding sustainable urban development municipal governance and related issues and uh, impri invites a wide range of stakeholders such as uh, practitioners academicians uh, representatives of uh, civil society organizations international organizations think tanks and many more in this series and today's topic uh, uh, governance challenges in india's small town is very important uh, majority of the india's urban population uh, lives in small cities with population under 1 lakh in 2011 uh, around 312 million people in india were living in urban settlements with a population between 5000 and 1 lakh and while the corresponding figure is uh, 256 million for larger cities and urban agglomerations now this cities experience serious infrastructural deficits and high incidence of poverty also there are the problems of ineffective top down governance structures uh, poor finances uh, weak institutional capacities and so on 
Now, while there are studies advocating uh, issues like uh, participatory governance, financial empowerment, institutional strengthening, but mostly they focus on big cities in India. There is almost no literature on what happens inside the uh, so as to say the black box of municipal governance in small cities and how urban planners respond or or rather should respond to these rapidly changing environment in such urban areas. And to understand these challenges uh, in India's small towns, we are fortunate to be joined by Dr. Tariq Tachil today. Uh, he is the director of Center for Advanced Studies in India and also an associate professor of political science at Madanlal Sopti Associate uh, for the Study of Contemporary India, University of Pennsylvania. And he was also associated uh, with Yale University as Peter Strauss Family Assistant Professor of Political Science and as Associate Professor of Political Science at Vanderbilt University. And his research examines uh, the political parties, the political behavior, identity politics, and urbanization with a regional focus on India. And he has published his research in uh, top-ranked journals, including the American Journal of Political Science, American Political Science Review, Comparative Politics, Comparative Political Studies, Journal of Politics, and World Politics. And uh, Dr. Tatchell's first book, Elite Parties, Poor Voters, How Social Services Win Votes in India, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in 2014, won numerous awards from the American Political Science Association, including the 2015 uh, a Drogari Lubet Award for Best Book in Comparative Politics and the 2015 Leon Epstein Award for uh, Best Book on Political Parties. And uh, his current research focuses on the political consequences of urbanization and uh, draws on extensive qualitative and quantitative research among poor migrants in Indian cities. And this work has won the 2018 Haynes Elow Prize for Best Article uh, published in the American Political Science Review and uh, 2020 American Journal of Political Science Best Article Award. And also, we are very happy to have with us uh, Dr. Devopriya Chakraborty, who is a ESRC postdoctoral fellow in School of Environment, Education and Development at the University of Manchester. Uh, she was also a researcher uh, associate at Commonwealth Local Government Forum at Cardiff University. And Dr. Chakraborty's research focuses on urban governance agendas, neoliberal urban policies. Also, our research expertise is in informal practices, livelihoods, uh, uh, sustainable urban transitions with focus on marginalized communities in the global south. And also, we have uh, Mr. Samir Unhale, uh, who is the Joint Commissioner, Department of Municipal Administration and Government of Maharashtra. So, uh, with this short introduction, uh, may I now request our speaker today, Dr. Tariq Tachil, to uh, proceed with his lecture. So it's over to you, Dr. Tachil. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jathapadhyay. Thank you so much for IMPRI for having me, Dr. Chakrabarti, for, um, for agreeing to serve as a, as a discussant. I'm very lucky to have uh, both our discussants today um, and also to be uh, uh, asked to present some work um, in this exciting series. So thank you for having me. Um, the presentation that I'm going to make today is on a project that is very new. Um, so it's definitely a project on which I would welcome any feedback. Um, it's a very simple presentation. Uh, it's not one in which we have, we are close to the end, much more close to the beginning of this research area. Um, and as Dr. Chattapadhyay says, these spaces are often quite black boxes, uh, quite black boxed, uh, these small towns across India. And this is just a very small um, um, initial attempt um, to try and understand some parts of these spaces. And so it's part of a, of a project that's beginning. And so I, I would 
definitely welcome um, your comments and your feedback. Um, and thanks again for having me. With that, let me just share my screen um, and uh, I'll start with the presentation. Um, so this is work uh, that I'm jointly undertaking with Adam Auerbach, uh, my co-author, who is a professor at the School of International Service in American University. And Adam and I have been doing um, work on urban India for the past uh, seven or eight years together, but we've mostly focused on um, uh, informal slum settlements um, in the cities of Jaipur and Bhopal. So this is um, um, uh, this this project looking at small towns is kind of shifting to um, to uh, smaller urban areas. And just to motivate the larger project and why we've been focused so much on urbanization, of course, this makes um, most of you will be knowing this given the, the theme of the series, but it bears repeating that, you know, between 1950 and 2050, the world is expected to transform from about 70% rural to 70% urban. And if we just look at a map of the share of the world's population living in urban areas in 1950, and darker blue means uh, more urban and lighter and green means less urban, we can see that you know, the transformation between 1950 and, 19, and 2050 that's going to happen, this was what it looked like in the year 2000. Um, we can see that several parts of the world got more urban, particularly um, in um, Southern America, the Middle East. Uh, but over from 2000 to 2050, if we look at the places that are going to turn from green to blue, it's mostly across um, sub-Saharan Africa and uh, much of South and Southeast Asia. And uh, almost all population growth from 2020 to 2050 is expected to occur in urban areas. Um, if we look at the UN 2018 uh, urbanization report, um, it actually estimated that rural populations are actually going to decline by 500 million after 2020. In fact, last year was the year that aggregate rural population across the world was thought to have peaked uh, at somewhere between 3 and 3.5 billion. Uh, by contrast, urban populations is supposed to rise by 2 billion during that same time frame. So if we look at the uh, increase from 2020 to 2050, this urban rise of about 2 billion, importantly, about 90% of it is supposed to occur across Asia and Africa, as I said. Um, the kind of flat green line is for wealthier areas where um, urban population and population growth overall is expected to be modest. And so really, in some ways, uh, the, you know, the, the, the country that, we, that brings us all together, India, um, is at the epicenter of this really profound global demographic shift and is anticipated to be the single biggest contributor um, to urban population growth globally. From 2020 to 2050, India is supposed to add or expected to add the combined population of the United States and France to its cities, over 400 million people, accounting for nearly a fifth of global urban growth, um, significantly outpacing um, both China and Nigeria, which rank number two and three on this anticipated list. And so it you know, bears repeating that understanding and planning for this transformation is going to be essential for the future well-being of India and of, for Indians. And so if we think about this phenomenon of urbanization, uh, obviously an important question becomes, where will India urbanize? And certainly for me, and I assume for many of you, and as Dr. Chattopadhyay said, our mental images of urban India often tend to be disproportionately drawn from mega cities, often defined as cities with more than 10 million inhabitants or million plus large cities, of which India has many, about 50. Um, and you know, if we think about these spaces and images that come to mind from these spaces, often 
the assumption is that urbanization is centered on either the natural growth of these cities or the flocking of people um, from the countryside to mega cities or large cities. And often that means the focus of governance challenges also disproportionately draws on the specific problems faced by large cities. One obvious example is um, you know, the problems of governance in areas that are dominated by expanding squatter settlements or slums. Um, this is obviously a famous picture of sky, skyscrapers abutting slums in Mumbai. Um, and certainly the, those kinds of settlements have occupied much of my own attention in thinking about urban spaces, rural to urban migration and circular migration, another topic I've worked on, I'm often focusing on those migration patterns from villages to these bigger cities. But far fewer, I think of us, maybe when we think about urban India or the challenges of India's urbanization, Think about uh, you know, spaces like Khandela in Rajasthan, a town that I visited uh, for three straight years um, just prior to the pandemic, uh, and has a population of just over just under 23,000 people. Um, or uh, in the same district, the city of Taranagar, um, which is uh, just over 30,000 people, both of which are you know, these small towns that um, often grow out of either being local, regional, or market nodes. Um, or uh, as large villages that expand, expand, expand over time until they uh, until they, class they are classified as urban areas. And so if we think about these particular spaces of Kandela uh, or Taranagar, while often we may not think about them, much of the growth in urban India, as Dr. Chattopadhyay alluded to, has been in such small towns. If we think of the 7,934 census-defined small towns, um, in India, about a little over 4,000 of them are statutory towns, about a little under 4,000 as census towns that are demographically urban, but politically remain uh, not governed by urban governance. Um, if we just think about this population of towns, about 468 of them have more than one lakh population, which means that about 94% of these towns have less than 100,000 people. So the vast majority of places that we designate, at least in the census as urban, uh, but even the vast majority of places that are notified as statutory towns um, are in fact these small areas. And as Dr. Chattopadhyay said, you know, the populations of these towns often surpasses um, those of larger cities that we spend much more uh, time on. And so, you know, a large question that I think we need much more attention to are what are the specific governance challenges of these small towns? And um, at least in my, and you know, I'd be well, I'd love to hear recommendations, but in my own passing of the literature um, and scholarship on this, I find very few systematic policy relevant studies of small town governments in India. And I think one problem is that we cannot simply assume that the challenges these places face are mechanically the same as of bigger cities. So, you know, our, in, our knowledge of bigger cities is certainly valuable, but I do not think we can assume that what we learn about big cities can simply be extended to smaller towns. Uh, for example, many of the small towns I visited, you know, managing large slum populations is not a, a big issue that focuses, uh, that is the attention of their, of their municipalities. And so they deserve their own attention. And so to help address this issue, um, Adam and I have been embarking on a study of small town governance across statutory towns in Rajasthan. So these are formerly urban towns in the state of Rajasthan where we've done a lot of work. And so we have some initial capacity. And if we look at the distribution of towns in Rajasthan, these are all the towns that have more than one lakh population. 
Um, there are about 30 of them. Um, but just look at the number of towns that you have with less than one lakh population, over 150 of them. Um, and they're spread out across the state. And I'm just showing you this visualization because I think if, I just want to make one quick point, which is um, often when, when I've been presenting this work, um, people assume that by small town, I just mean you know the small peripheries around bigger cities. But I think this map makes clear that that's not what small towns are, um, at least in Rajasthan and certainly in much many other parts of India. I've identified here at least three clusters where uh, there are many, many small towns and there's actually not a big town um, near them. So these are often these autonomous spaces that are not simply satellites of large towns um, and deserve their own study. And again, you know, if we look across the distribution of towns in um, you know, some of the big states of northern India, Rajasthan, Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh, Bihar, we can identify similar clusters of small towns that are uh, not simply you know, outgrowths or adjoining areas of large cities. So with that in mind, um, we conducted field visits to about 18 small towns across Rajasthan in 2018 and 19. And those visits immediately raised um, fundamental issues of municipal governance that are often more fundamental than issues that big cities face and are familiar to many urban researchers, but I'll repeat them here for the audience. Uh, in particular, most of these small towns have yet to set up even basic systems of municipal finance and service delivery or infrastructure provisioning. And I don't think this will shock any of you, but you know it is immediately apparent when you hit these towns, um, you see you know, inadequate road infrastructure even in the main and most highly densely populated town areas. So these were officially um, uh, the, the kind of crowded and even well-off colonies within the small towns of Kandela, Taranagar, and several other towns we visited. And this is backed up, you know, these inadequacies of, of paved roads is backed up by census data that shows, you know, the roads per square kilometers um, are, um, you know, even if we adjust for the sizes of these towns, um, small towns just have weaker road networks than larger cities. And that was, we go down and uh, up in class size, you know, the class one being the largest, class six being the smallest towns, we see the road network across Rajasthan gets weaker and weaker. And we see inadequate sewage and drainage systems. Uh, we were often traveling during, um, during the rains and you could see that even a mild shower would immediately flood these road systems. Unlike larger cities like Bombay and Delhi, 94% uh, of towns in India do not even have a partial sewage net network. In fact, Dr. Chattopadhyay's own work notes this. 93% of urban sewage finds its way to ponds, rivers, lakes, um, often without treatment. So these are fundamental services we expect cities to provide that these cities do not even have partial provisioning of. Similarly, with weak systems of trash collection, often absent, you know, some of these towns would even have these trash receptacles uh, pictured on the right, but they would just be uh, languishing, not actually distributed across the city, and no collection service. Um, and it's not too hard to find out why this is the case. Why are services inadequate? Well, in part, services are inadequate because spending is inadequate in these cities. If we look comparatively, the annual capital spending per person in cities uh, in, in China is about $362 per person. In South Africa, it's over $500 per person. And in India, the sim uh, similar estimation strategy suggested it was about $50 per person. And this is the overall average. The infrastructure spending is even lower than this in smaller cities. So we're not spending enough, uh, at least relative to um, countries that we might even reasonably compare ourselves to. So what is driving this low spending is the next obvious question. And I think here, um, if we, we can even look to, uh, in the case of Rajasthan, the State Finance Commission's um, own conclusions in a report it authored in 2013, which uh, was on this problem of low revenues. And it said, you know, the rapid growth of cities and towns across the state has not been matched by a corresponding increase in their revenues. In fact, it even said revenue collection is simply pathetic in all these municipalities. 
And this has been a particular concern for towns, not just in Rajasthan, but across many states of India, since the major local source of revenue for these towns, Octroi, which many of you will know is the point of entry tax on goods when they enter the town, was withdrawn in Rajasthan by the state government in 1998. And this was often the major source of revenue for these localities. And there's been no corresponding increase in other revenue sources since this was taken away. And so if we look at why there are low revenues, I should say with a caveat, uh, very hard to get systematic comparable data on municipal finance. This is one of the problems of small towns. We don't always have great budgetary data, but to the extent that we do, the available estimates show that municipal revenue, just look at how it's different for big towns and large towns, even per capita, per person, um, we see that the, uh, you know, the kind of revenue that is available for the biggest cities in India, the six largest municipal corporations, is about 10,000 rupees per person. Compare it with you know, uh, municipal corporations with under a million people, uh, and that's about uh, under 4,000 rupees. So these are still bigger cities, but with less than a million people, they have only about 4,000 rupees compared to 10,000 rupees. And you can see that small towns with under 100,000 people have even less, about 3,000 rupees. So only about 30% per person, again, this is a per person figure, only about 30% of the revenue available to bigger cities. So it's, it's clear that this revenue problem is significant. And a big part of that reason is that small towns have been simply unable to collect revenue from their own residents. Across the world, a basic model of municipal finance and service delivery is to collect revenue and, and often through uh, taxation and other mechanisms from your own residents, and then use that to finance service delivery. Again, looking at the six biggest municipalities in India, about 60% of their total revenue comes from these own sources, from their own city residents. By contrast, if we look at small town municipalities, it's only about 23% on average. So far fewer, less than half as much of the, so not only do they have little money, but off that little pie that they're able to collect from their residents, uh, it's a very little percentage. So overall small town budgets are smaller and even off those smaller budgets, they collect a smaller share from their citizens. So citizens are providing very little um, to the coffers of their governments. This obviously not only constrains their budget, but also their autonomy, making them heavily dependent on resources from the central and state governments, which are not always consistent in what they provide these governments with. And we see this pattern in Rajasthan. So for example, here in Jaipur, about half of the budget Jaipur raises from its own residents, but in small towns that we visited like Ninkathana and Pindawa, and here we had access to the primary budget data, um, it's about 10 to 15% of the budget that these towns are actually able to raise themselves. They rely on the state and center for the rest. So how do we address this shortfall? How do we address this, this problem? This is um, a problem that um, has persisted across these towns. Well, the State Finance Commission of Rajasthan said that towns need to impose existing taxes, levy new taxes, and charge residents user fees for services like water, waste disposal, etc. Um, that sounds good, but who should be doing these tasks specifically? And often formally, the powers of, of, of raising these revenues lies with the elected officials of these small town governments. As many of you know, after the 74th constitutional amendment was passed, power for many of these basic services and, and revenue raising um, activities was devolved um, to local elected governments. And uh, as, the, as you know, the 12th schedule actually outlines about 18 core functions, including service and infrastructure provision and local revenue collection to these local governments. And in Rajasthan, many of these duties have been further developed within the 2009 Rajasthan Municipal Act. So if it's these elected town councils that are responsible, 
Um, what is the logic there? Well, the logic was that by empowering these local actors, these local actors who are often town residents will be better informed about what their town needs. They'll be elected democratically, so they will have a compulsion to work and work hard uh, because they're accountable to residents through elections. And they might be also increasingly representative of um, uh, local populations through quota systems in which one third of seats are reserved for women and we have reservations for disadvantaged castes. So they're going to be more informed, more responsive, more representative. So if that's the theory of local governments, then why are these local councils failing in some of their basic duties of raising revenues and delivering services? And one obvious explanation is that actually not enough power is being given to these governments. While they've been constituted and elected, they are not actually being given all the powers that they're supposed to get. So for example, certain taxes that local governments should be empowered to collect uh, such as a tax on professions, a tax on entertainment. Many states, including Rajasthan, have not allowed urban local governments to actually collect. That power remains with the state government. And these trends have only been exacerbated by centralizing trends in federal finance in India over recent years. Um, I think that that's a broadly fair point. But in some ways, this, this point that not enough power is being given to local governments fails to explain in small towns underperformance even in those areas that local governments have been empowered. So I think this inadequate decentralization point applies broadly to most Indian cities. But in small towns, there's an, uh, there's an additional problem, which is even that those few powers that those governments have been given, even those areas, these governments are underperforming. So for example, in Rajasthan, local governments routinely fail to collect the basic taxes and fees that they are empowered to collect, most importantly, the house or urban development tax. So we looked at town budgets for towns like Khandela, which I mentioned earlier. This is a mandated tax that the government of Khandela is meant to collect. And yet its collection rarely crosses 1% of its overall revenue. So only 1% of, the, of the, the money that the town has actually comes from this uh, uh, house tax and property taxes, which are in many ways the most important tax that municipalities in many countries have. And across Rajasthan, these property taxes average just 2 to 4% of revenue for all towns, which is a shockingly low number. So why is this? Well, according to the state government and the state finance commission, it's because towns suffer from corruption, vested interests, and a lack of willingness to work hard. And this is a common explanation for politics in India. When things are underperforming, we say it's because local politicians are corrupt. That's fine, but most of these arguments have been made without any evidence uh, actually coming from these towns themselves. Um, as far as we could tell, we find no systematic surveys of small town elected officials and bureaucrats, uh, executive officers. So we're making a lot of arguments about small towns uh, or based on assumption, not data. And so to rectify this, we tried to conduct a large scale face-to-face -face survey of small town elected officials called parshads or counselors. Um, and we were just going to do this survey when COVID hit. And so our plans were stalled. And so we pivoted to a remote survey based on the phone. This was not easy. Um, because this approach faced challenges, there's no available list of counselor phone numbers from which we can construct a, you know, so we want to interview Pashas, there's no database of all of their phone numbers in one space. So in order to collect the phone numbers of elected officials in Rajasthan, uh, we scraped uh, from the web, um, the candidate affidavits from the last municipal election um, from the Rajasthan State Election Commission. So you can get these affidavits as you, as you, you'll all be familiar and have seen no doubt um, that all candidates for these local elections are required to file. 
And these candidate affidavits actually had the name of the candidate, the ward number, and their mobile phone number. Um, and so we digitized this information um, and created a database of just under 13,000 candidates, everybody who won or came second um, in local body elections across urban Rajasthan, and used this uh, to conduct our phone survey. Um, so for the past three months, we just concluded this phone survey and we were able to survey um, just about 2000 um, officials, uh, about 1148 elected ones who won the race and about 900 people who came second. Um, and we were very pleased that our response rate on the phone was over 70% for both men and for women. Again, women are one third of the representatives. Um, and to our knowledge, it's the first such survey of small town elected officials in India, really trying to get from the horse's mouth a sense of who these people are um, and what they know and do. And um, in some ways, actually, the, you know, the COVID survey forced us to go online. And that in some ways was a blessing because uh, it allowed us to capture a much larger sample across many more towns than if we had to go to every town personally. Um, and so just very basic data that we got from the survey, if we think of uh, from our sample, about 86% of our sample was Hindu, 12% was Muslim. Um, it's distributed across the caste spectrum, about 23% are either scheduled caste or scheduled tribe, 41% are OBC, 24% are forward caste. Uh, very even across the parties, about 38% Congress, 37% BJP, a high proportion of independent candidates, which is common in these low, smaller towns. Interestingly, about seven out of 10 candidates have never contested elections before. So the vast majority of people who are governing in these spaces have very low political experience. Um, and the average education was about 11 years, about 20% of the sample had less than eight years of schooling. I'm not gonna to talk too much about all the different parts of the survey. I just wanna focus on one simple point before I conclude, which is that one of the things we found was a fundamental lack of information and knowledge from these small town elected officials about their basic responsibilities. So how do we measure that? Well, what we looked at was we tried to look at what does the Rajasthan state government itself expect these local officials to know? So just last year, the, the, the Rajasthan uh, local bodies um, directorate issued a counselor's handbook in which they said, it's very important that counselors actually know the legal basis of their authority. And in particular, it highlighted that the 74th constitutional amendment, which establishes the municipalities and the councils to which these uh, officials are elected is the most important piece of legislation for these officials to know. So we asked uh, and found that less than 3% of elected officials actually have ever heard of the 74th amendment or know that it is the basis of their authority. So by the, you know, the state government's own plan that this is the most important thing they should know, uh, only about 3% actually have ever heard of it. It was a very low bar. We just wanted to know if they have even ever heard of it. Only 3% said they knew. And these are 3% of the elected officials, the people who won that election. We then asked if councillors knew about official urban planning priorities for their town, since their government is in charge of this. Each town in Rajasthan, the state government has developed a master plan from 20, that's supposed to cover from 2010 to 2031. And these plans develop an outline of how land use is supposed to be developed in these towns, an incredibly important issue. So this map is for the town of Ninkathana and shows what the land use was in 2010 and what the goal is to become in 2031. And again, these elected officials are going to be a key part of the process of this, uh, of this uh, master plan being executed. But only 43% of elected officials even know that their town has a master plan. And only 5% have ever seen the master plan and know what years it's for. 
Similarly, if we think about the revenue raising role, the importance of these towns to raise revenue uh, and how crucial that is to actually deliver services. Well, we would think that one stop is, do these elected officials even know about the mandatory taxes that their government should be collecting from residents? The most important, as I mentioned, is the urban development tax. In Rajasthan, this was formerly known as the house tax. Um, this is just the form for filling out the house tax um, for, that, for, for, for residents to do. This is collected in Rajasthan on any residence that's over 300 square yards and on commercial, institutional, and industrial areas. So in the Rajasthan Municipal Act, you know, councillors are told this is a mandatory tax that your government has to collect. They are also empowered to levy certain new taxes to enhance resource collection. So if you want to boost the budget of your town, the local council can pass and then send to the state for approval, new taxes on things like advertising, lighting, fire and stamp duty surcharges. Do the councillors know about this? Do the councillors know that they are empowered to charge fees for services? So if we are providing uh, you know, solid waste drainage, um, safai, pani, are we allowed to charge fees for that? Do councillors even know that they are allowed? Forget about whether they are doing it. Do they even know that they're supposed to be doing it? So what we found is, again, about 57% of officials know that their, house, their government is supposed to collect house tax. So basically, about half don't even know they're supposed to collect this urban development tax. Uh, similarly, about half don't even know that they can levy new taxes. Uh, less than half know they're supposed to collect user fees. And moving on to key budgetary duties, Rajasthan state law actually says the elected council officials and council chair has to approve any new infrastructure project for their town that is over one lakh in expense. And for slightly bigger Nagar Parishads, two lakhs in expense. So another rule is that the council has to create and approve its budget by mid-February, and this council must meet six times a year. So these are just the basic outlines of what these elected officials are supposed to do. Um, finally, they are supposed to formal, uh, create formal committees, many uh, a range of committees to implement taxation, service delivery, et cetera. So these are, again, basic things these towns are supposed to do. Do they know this? So only about 23% know that their council chair has to approve expenditures of over one or two lakh rupees, depending on the town size. Only about a quarter even know the number of times their council should meet each year. And less than 3% know the date their council must finalize their annual budget, which is one of the key activities they have to do. Uh, somewhat shockingly, even to us, uh, there's almost no functional committee of any town, time, type in any town, even an executive committee, which is meant to be the big committee. Uh, basically, less than 2% of respondents even know that they're supposed to exist, and they don't exist in, in practically any of the 60 towns that we surveyed. So for us, we think these are pretty sobering results. The questions we asked were very basic, low bar, fact-based questions. We didn't really ask for whether you knew how to do things, just whether you knew you were supposed to do things. And what we find is that some of these knowledge gaps are particularly acute for particular kinds of elected officials. So we looked, for example, at gender, education, and social groups just very quickly. We see male men in, in yellow and women in blue. And we do see that for some certain items, women are especially not knowing. So for example, that the council should collect house tax or that the chairperson's approval is required. Some key duties, women are significantly less likely to know about that than, than men. Uh, at the same time, even men don't fare very well. If we take a 50% as like just a basic threshold, uh, even men only cross that threshold on two of these items. 
With social group, if we look at Muslims in blue, SCST in orange, OBC in gray, and upper caste in yellow, again, we see some discrepancies. So for example, uh, upper castes are more likely to know than Muslims that you can levy new taxes. Uh, but again, broadly, most groups don't fare well. So even upper caste Hindu uh, elected officials uh, don't cross 50% for more than one of these items. Similarly with education, we do see more educated respondents uh, in orange. They often do know more than less educated respondents. But again, I would say, you know, while these gaps are there and they're important, I would say overall the takeaway is that really there's no group that knows very much. There are some differences, but no group crosses 65% on any measure. Most don't even cross 50%. And when we compare this even with runners up in orange, we see similar lack of knowledge. It's not that this is a problem um, just for the people who happen to win the election. Even if the person who came second and won the election, our results probably would not change very much. So just to conclude, I think these findings have implications for improving small town governance because often our focus has been that we are not decentralizing enough power uh, to these local governments or that these local governments are corrupt or that they don't care. Um, and I think all of those arguments may have merit, uh, but I think that what we're, our work is initially showing, and again, this is very early days, this is just our first cut at this, that these arguments often are not based on systematic evidence from the governments themselves and from officials themselves. And our initial effort to do even just one survey suggested that there's an issue that's received much less attention than corruption or lack of decentralization which is elected officials don't know their basic roles and responsibilities. Now, we are not suggesting that just because they find out they'll suddenly become, you know, that these governments will transform overnight. But it does suggest, I think, that these severity of knowledge gaps suggest that even modest training efforts may provide at least some boost to governing capabilities of small towns. Simply decentralizing more power to officials who don't know what they're supposed to do may not be very effective. And the training may be especially helpful for vulnerable groups women, lower castes, and Muslims who have lower levels of information on key items. And these training efforts, therefore, might simultaneously improve the efficacy of these governments, but also the representative quality of local governments, because they may disproportionately empower uh, marginalized groups. Again, we do not suggest it's a silver bullet, nor do we want to rely uh, uh, deny real inadequacies in decentralization of municipal finance and empowerment of local governments or the possible malfeasance or corruption of local actors. But I think we want to say, let's begin by looking um, at something that may be more low hanging fruit, these very important knowledge gaps that may be easier to address through policy than corruption or, or politically fraught issues of center state relations. And I think one sil you know, silver lining in our survey was that only 5% of officials said they got any training but 94% expressed a desire to participate in training if provided and expressly said they would like to learn about how to uh, uh, manage budgetary affairs. And in fact, we got an email from a respondent um, after from one of the elected officials after the survey um, saying that he would like to participate in a training uh, based on the survey questions that we had asked because he didn't know most of what we were asking, which I thought was a refreshing moment of honesty. Anyway, again, just to conclude on the research front, these are very early days for understanding these spaces. We are planning to try and collect data to more rigorously measure the capacity and performance of these governments to understand variation, which towns are doing well, which towns are not, um, and to survey bureaucrats who are also obviously important actors in these towns and the residents themselves to see how they interact with their government and what they expect. Um, and we hope that this will be part of an effort to study small towns in India more systematically as they surely deserve.
So with that, I'll conclude. Thank you so much. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tariq, for your excellent uh, presentation. And uh, really, you have mentioned so many important points. Uh, first of all, you highlighted about the importance of this metrocentricity of the uh, present urban scholars uh, uh, regarding these urban governance challenges. And also, you have mentioned about the, uh, the problem of inadequacy of the infrastructural facilities, uh, which can be, in fact, is attributed to this poor financial health, which adding to these uh, which are leading to this low spending and he highlighted the aspects of low revenue autonomy of these uh, small towns uh, making them largely dependent on the grants and city governments they lack power even to set and collect taxes these are some of the problems which are there in the context of small cities and even the implementation of the decentralization reform is at best uh, can be considered as partial uh, you have uh, surveyed you have uh, mentioned about the survey of the local elected councillors they were uh, mostly unaware about the various provisions of the decentralization reforms, including the revenue raising power and uh, key budgetary issues and so on. And also uh, the problematic part of it is that this basic knowledge gap, which is in general found to be invariant to caste or gender or social relations. So, and all these you have rightly pointed out raises our concern regarding the efficiency of, or the efficacy rather of this entire decentralization reforms on which we are banking on to improve the mm -hmm. uh, urban governance situations in most of the small towns in India. So uh, I, I hope uh, uh, many more comments will come. And uh, with this, uh, let me now invite uh, Dr. Devapriya Chakraborty, uh, if you please uh, share your comments on uh, today's presentation. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Professor Jattabadhyay, for moderating this session. And thank you, uh, Professor Tashil, for this wonderful, fascinating presentation. This actually uh, is so so much in line with uh, with whatever we've, we've got in our... Actually, um, I, I'll just uh, speak very briefly about a small project that we... Uh, that I did with... Uh, I was just a research associate when I was working at Cardiff University with IIM Calcutta and um, and the Commonwealth Local Government Forum. So this was about uh, you know border towns um, in the India-Bangladesh border, and one of our case study location particularly was the small town of Bongao, which is very stre strategically positioned because it's about six six kilometers from the Petropol Benapol border which is the largest uh, land port in South Asia, I think, about 20,000 crores of transaction that happens from there. And this town is facing um, drastic change in urban, uh, the urban form, actually, it's uh, seeing urbanization due to the, not only the trade that happens through the petropol Benapol border, but also uh, because a lot of uh, Bangladeshi citizens, they come to India for medical healthcare, uh, healthcare, uh, uh, reasons so so they come for you know doc you know to the doctor's checkup and they they eventually come to Calcutta but then Bonga is become sort of becoming like the hub of these things uh, and uh, the approximately the population of Bonga is uh, just one lakh plus but the but the thing that we found was this uh, you know being so mar marginalized in terms uh, you know spatially marginalized Bonga is not marginalized uh, because uh, it's not only uh, the the state government has immense power over the the local U, the ULB, but also uh, with the with the presence of the BSF so close to the border, the the central government has a lot of uh, you know there's this power tussle between the central and the state power uh, state uh, powers, and particularly the US uh, the ULB is um, 
in, in a position to not only do nothing about the infrastructure, they wanted to, uh, just a small example was they wanted to build a shed for local vendors to uh, close to the Petropole border, but then that got, uh, you know, they, it, had, it had to go through the BSF, etc., and that just got stalled. So this is an interesting case, and, uh, and I, I don't know whether you know this, uh, recently with the amendment of the, the BSF Act of 1968, the power of the BSF is now uh, uh, from 15 kilometers inside the border, they're now extending it to 50 kilometers. So this is going to impact a lot of small towns around the borders, particularly. And I think this is the 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 point that you made about the you know the efficacy or or the, um, the decentralization of power that has actually not happened in these smaller towns. And and I think this is something that we need to look into. You know, th th there needs to be much more discussion in the policy and the academic realms about this uh, this issue. And uh, yeah. And probably, and I also think the, the, the point you made about surveying bureaucrats, uh, while we were doing this research in this uh, border areas, not only just Bonga, we, we, we looked at the rural areas around the border as well. And this was also during the pandemic, we, didn't, we were not able to go, but then whatever we could do over the phone, I thought that even the bureaucrats were not in a position to comment about this, uh, the, you know, what their powers actually were. So something that we we might want to reflect on um, later because uh, this is this is increasingly one of the more important issues that we have to think about for future India. Yeah, that's it. So well, thank you, thank you, Dr. Chakraborty, for your comments. And just to add to what you have said, like uh, just I have recently going through one interesting book by uh, Suraj Jacob and Babu Jacob. It's the Governing Locally by Cambridge University Press. So they are also uh, this problem of local capacity. So the author, they did a survey on uh, some of the uh, towns of Kerala and Gujarat. And there, uh, just very interesting comment, Jake, quite contrary to our expectation of this popular participation and we are hailing Kerala experience. What we are seeing is that the, uh, the rulemaking authority uh, regarding this implementation of this decentralization reforms in case of Kerala lies with the state governments, whereas it is completely the case opposite in the context of Gujarat, which uh, crucially shaped the uh, decision-making power of the local bodies and their ability to provide services. So this is a very interesting study and you mentioned quite rightly about the state-local uh, uh, relationship uh, and how this can shape this entire governance framework of, the, uh, of, of these small towns in India. So thank you so much, and and uh, and we also have with us Dr. Uh, Samir Unhale. So uh, I'm sure that he is going to present some bird's eye view, being an administrator. So it's over to you, uh, Mr. Unhale. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, great to be back with Impri, and uh, thank you, Dr. Tariq, uh, for uh, trying uh, for putting your research efforts into the smaller towns and problems of smaller towns. And Dr. also to Dr. Depria for her uh, efforts in trying to understand uh, the issues with smaller towns. Uh, probably is working with smaller towns for last uh, maybe two decades or so. I am probably not as pessimistic as uh, it might be sounding, but I found uh, the councillors in local bodies are much more intelligent. They are much more practical. They are much more uh, focused and result oriented than probably what the uh, what then what the 
people who are working with the municipal local bodies are so maybe my perceptions are uh, determined more so by what's happening in maharashtra because probably maharashtra was one of the first then uh, british provinces uh, to have the municipal governance framework especially the central and central province and berar and uh, i think the bombay then bombay province had municipalities right from 1850 and 1852 and 1853 so probably there's a long history of urban uh, local governance in the municipal approach in probably the state of maharashtra and uh, uh, the act uh, that we had in 1965 Uh, covered more than 90% of the features of urban local bodies in uh, the uh, of the constitution amendment that was a general perception that was there amongst reporters if not academicians uh, because it was uh, done by a very progressive uh, leader of a committee uh, which was formed in 1963 and uh, maybe the and maybe due to the democratic decentralization in the state probably was much more stronger the cooperative movement uh, was much more stronger and there is much more uh, there is a easier uh, resemblance between the cooperative movement and the local uh, democratic decentralized structures uh, that the reason but i do find that uh, the point raised here of training is very important and uh, i think uh, every time a new municipal body comes up uh, there are some good training institutes in the country uh, i think the all india institute of local self government is one such training institute which do take training for uh, various uh, counselors uh, across the uh, country uh, secondly i always find that india is a it is a country of subcontinental size or with a population of three and a half continents put together and as i keep on saying that india's urban system Uh, is most complex its most I mean, geographical variations are there language economic ecological factors the environmental status is very much different so probably when we talk of uh, anything uh, in urbanization in india uh, probably the uh, it's difficult to you know the, explain the entire nation as such uh, uh, with a simpler statements or so so it's always going to be a a uh, very complex uh, scene and uh, every state uh, every uh, state in in any case has their own uh, acts and uh, uh, we still don't have a uh, common act so to say uh, as uh, urban development is still a state subject and not a concurrent subject uh, by and large it's only the urban transport which is in the concurrent list that's the reason you have so many metros Uh, with the government of india participation but by and large uh, maybe as and when we can have the next uh, constitutional amendment uh, i don't know if uh, the effort is made to put the urban development from state list to the concurrent list uh, regarding small towns of course it was very uh, good to you know see uh, the examples of you know uh, maybe rajasthan which is uh may be comparable uh, many many places especially as far as the financial capacity is concerned the capacity of manpower is concerned the uh, the ability of the councils to implement projects is concerned yes i mean uh, uh, uh the way we define our urban uh, localities or the census towns and onwards i think it's more population based uh and of course the element of non agricultural population percentage is always there but i think the indian uh, when you talk of smaller towns uh, 
uh, Indian towns are more rural in nature than urban. I mean, uh, it is more of a, a population a population that really uh, compels you to make them uh, urban. And uh, the, 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 that's the reason I always felt that, you know, it's very, very, in fact, in Tamil Nadu, every city, every town, sorry, census town beyond 5,000 becomes a municipal town. Uh, in many other states, the transitory urban area, as we call it, get themselves, uh, you know, identified as uh, urban. Uh, and if you look at the work ethos, the infrastructure, there's very much, you know, it's still, they're just, uh, uh, by and large, they're still into the uh, rural mindset and the rural uh, infrastructure also for that matter. So I think uh, if you look at the policy responses from the central government and state government for last couple of decades, I think uh, most more importantly, I think from 2005 onwards, uh, the, as, as you had a JNURM uh, mission, you had a urban governance uh, a component for bigger towns and also a equally strong component was available for the smaller towns and medium towns also, which was called as the UID SSMT. So I think that was one mission and uh, probably uh, the functioning now is more mission centric now. Uh, we have more and more missions uh, being, you know, uh, being uh, administered and executed. So uh, as far as the, uh, even in the state of Maharashtra, I can share that uh, uh, there has been a, a state uh, scheme also, uh, which is called as the Golden Jubilee. You know, it started then actually, the, the state formation. And uh, that uh, focuses essentially on the infrastructure of smaller towns. And uh, I think more than 12,000 crores uh, have been, uh, have been uh, sanctioned this scheme and more than 150 projects are being implemented over 80 towns or so. So uh, we do find a policy response from both the, from the state government and also now the central government is coming with the Amrut mission. So Amrut mission is specifically for the medium and smaller towns. And I think many uh, uh, state governments across India, I believe, I am sure, you know, many cities, towns, of smaller towns, medium towns, are uh, taking benefit of this uh, Amrut 2.0, which focuses more on the urban and the uh, sewage uh, treatment part. And of course, the Swachh Bharat is for the solid waste management part. So I think for last uh, decade or one and a half, so uh, we are seeing a lot of um, government, uh, government, central government funding also tied up with the state as well as local government uh, being uh, channeled into making the small, small and medium towns uh, uh, remove, I mean, at least reduce the, or remove if possible, this infrastructure deficit. Uh, that exists in uh, these towns. Uh, that was having said so about the infrastructure facilities, uh, there are of course certain sectors beyond water, sewerage, and solid waste management that still requires some uh, some focus, uh, especially electricity, energy, especially when we are talking of uh, climate. Uh, of course, uh, it would be you know the climate load that whatever which could be created from a single person for a small town would be very, very less, you know. I mean, in fact, China is 15 tons uh, of CO2 emission per capita per year. I think China is around nine, uh, whatever, nine or eight, 10. And urban India is two. And if you go to small towns, it would be very, very small because the basic Indian load comes out of the urban uh, system. So the 
when you are talking of uh, smaller towns, I think the specter, so to say, of uh, CO2 uh, emissions and climate is not that extent as far as their load is concerned. However, the uh, climate insurance or you know, uh, making them resilient and adaptable is, of course, going to be there because, uh, as you as I mentioned by uh, Dr. Depriyaji, if there are smaller towns in uh, maybe Calcutta, or you know those uh, closer to the coastal region, then obviously the higher intensity and frequency of uh, of cyclones, or maybe even in uh, we will always there even in Maharashtra we were surprised to see a greater frequency of cyclones in the in the Arabian Sea, uh, which earlier was essentially the Bay of Bengal. But we we are getting at least one or two cyclones now every year, uh, which does create uh, which just highlight the importance of. Uh, uh, climate resilience vis-a-vis -vis the adaptability of the city to uh, tackle to that disaster. So those capacity issues are always there. So what we feel that earlier we talked of uh, challenges of infrastructure essentially and providing basic civic services. Now they are getting uh, more uh, complex. We are having newer challenges. And uh, for example, like pandemic, uh, which the entire globe is facing, the issues with smaller towns uh, were actually in a sense a bit different than bigger towns. Uh, uh, because uh, the municipal bodies absolutely, uh, there's no question of having a municipal hospital is there. So the state's uh, government's uh, public health infrastructure system uh, was obviously what was catering to mostly by and large as well as the uh, treatment is concerned, what the municipal bodies and we did provide it also funding to them uh, and allowed the, the finance commission funding and other state grants that we give to them to be used for the pandemic. But obviously they had to depend upon the state government and uh, uh, that issue is we will we is there, you know. And uh, it was I think it was the slides of Dr. Tariq was also very good, you know. So we could uh, really visually see the, the proportion of the own taxes or own income of urban local body. I think is progressively going down and down. What it was probably three decades back. Uh, of course, uh, the Maharashtra had the octra earlier, or the and then the local body tax. But after the GST, we are seeing that you know most of the taxation powers of uh, of elastic sources of income and the major uh, source of income is now with the the GST council now, both state and center, and therefore the uh, reliance of grants uh, to the municipal finance is getting more and more important. And uh, in a sense, I some I had my friend you know who told me he said while just chatting he had said that. Now you are having local self-government without local finance. So that's a, uh, that's a scene which, of course, we feel that the statutory transfer of uh, resources from the central as well as state to an extent uh, could uh, reduce the, uh, the uncertainties of the uh, municipal finance, which still depend upon grants. And the tax part, of course, we rightly pointed out that the <clears throat> taxes need to be levied, <clears throat> but uh, the urban uh, economy or so to say the economy of that small town and the ability of that economy to uh, really uh, ensure that the cost of the provision of basic services is taken care of is also an issue that will have to be considered. To my, my gut feeling or conjecture would be that uh, the economy of small towns is not that strong enough to to you know to uh, take cater to the entire expenditure that really goes into the uh, 
the provision of basic services and the salaries of the people which they go. So I think uh, I think there's a need to have more research on municipal finance and the connections of urban economics with municipal finance and the options and the possibility of new options uh, that are being discussed, which more or often becomes relevant to the bigger bigger towns and metro regions. Like you know, we talk of climate finance, we talk of green finance, the bond market. And uh, really considering the current scenario of the uh, smaller towns, uh, probably there will have to be a greater flexibility, greater pooling of uh, you know credit, some pool finance schemes, a mix of those innovative schemes will have to be uh, thought of to really, if we are really going to think of the debt financing of uh, the infrastructure or services or the other urban services in the smaller towns. Uh, I think moving from finance and the infrastructure provision and basic services, uh, probably I think uh, we are aware now that a lot of uh, indices are now being there and a lot of competitions are happening. We have municipal ease of living index, you have ease of doing business, you have got municipal performance index, we have got Swatch Bharat, Swatch Sarvekshan competitions, we have got you know, so a lot of uh, data, I believe, should is now getting up with the central government in digital format. You know, of the, in fact, I had done a small exercise myself uh, in which uh, all these uh, various uh, competitions that the uh, central government is uh, taking, uh, there are almost 780 data points. And, you know, they all are uh, with the, uh, with the, uh, on digital format with the ministry. It could be such, in fact, the use of IT by the ministry in these missions have been extraordinary. And I think if the uh, mission is requested uh, by the various uh, research institutions, I'm sure they will uh, make the uh, data available. And I think that uh, now the scene, what the scene was maybe uh, uh, five, six years back, and the scene now has there been drastic change. And uh, lots of data, I think, is available with the, in digital format with the ministries. And uh, if I think uh, <clears throat> requests are made, I'm sure the missions and the ministry would uh, consider you know, sharing this uh, data. In fact, uh, as far as the smart cities are concerned, the smart city missions have taken a specific you know, open data platform is now being created. In fact, there have been chief data officers appointed to all the 11, uh, all the 100 smart cities. And I think the issue of data would be much better in coming uh, uh, months, if uh, if not years, uh, to that. Uh, fourth issue I wanted to really uh, uh, share and raise here was the that of the human resources, uh, both the political as well as non-political. Uh, I think political, of course, the findings which they are, it also depends on the which um, uh, year of the election we conduct the data. I think that data point could also be considered if you're, if you're going to take the survey in the first year of the their election, they obviously they would be knowing less and less. And as the years progress, then they become much more smarter than even the officers there. So they know much more than them. So I think the uh, data, when it is conducted, could also be a point which to let us know, you know, whether whether the uh, uh, whether they are really knowing that or not. That's one point I wanted to share. Secondly, I think the uh, as, as I said, is more semi-rural. The smaller towns of maybe fifty thousand at uh, the thirty thousand, twenty thousand, maybe eighty thousand, one lakh. Uh, at least, at least around those around fifty thousand are almost semi-rural, and the councillor represents a family and not an individual. So you would find that uh, those typical, uh, maybe a smaller number of politically active families will keep on circulating the councillors among themselves, depending upon the 
uh, garamandering or whatever the new ward uh, uh, formation which happens every most of the time it happens every uh, second or third election and the reservations of the reservations which are put upon women upon obc upon sta they just keep on changing so that is the i think the reason why we find that the, there were so many first timer councillors i think which uh, the dr tariq's uh, uh, research show that there were a very high number of first time councillors the reason for that is that the reservation is always moving around within the, the wards and therefore you have uh, uh many new people and very few people uh, many new people into the body every election and maybe hardly at this point maybe uh, 20% at the most or 25% get repeated but the family remains maybe a person which is maybe an open or open category or obc category when it becomes a woman reservation the woman from their uh, family then becomes the councillor but i believe the uh, preponderance of a limited number of families within the uh town uh, to an extent the uh, dues remain and normally doesn't change because uh, the councillors or the families i have seen 20 years back uh, their kids are no councillors so i won't be naming the cities or the towns i have seen but that just tend to you know continue because the uh, it's nothing new in india that uh, grand maybe uh, the parent grandparents grandson grand nephews will be in politics let it be state as well as the local body uh regarding i think now uh, the women representation uh, that we see into into the elections uh, especially of local bodies i think is also important parameter uh, important you know uh, process uh, that should be considered more more closely in fact uh, i do i was earlier working as a municipal commissioner for a city you know which was closer to the border of uh, adjoining state and uh, a lot of work was done there on women councillors i think uh, how are they what is the on the similar parameters maybe if not the same and uh, uh, i think that was a very important part uh, so i think i will stop here and uh, allow uh, dr tariq to you know share some responses and maybe if time permits we could uh, continue it so uh, uh, thanks a lot i would uh, wait for some time yeah thank you thank you uh, mr ronale so uh, now let me move over to dr tarik and also uh, before responding to two of our discussions uh, points you may also have a look at the chat box because i am seeing one uh, uh, one chat from uh, mukta naik and also bill so you can also have a look and then uh, respond accordingly so what to you dr tarik uh, yes thank you so much uh, i do see the question from um, mukta and i think you know there is Uh, she makes a good point that you know the small towns have very informal economies and um you know is this because inadequate powers to tax mean less incentive to bring firms property under the rubric of formal rules i do think there's an incentives uh, there's a potential incentives problem um and there are often political incentive problems with taxing more i mean that's not just true for small towns like bringing uh you know expanding taxation is often politically not very palatable um and especially when uh the boy you know the the chief source of revenue which was octroi by definition was not charged of residents uh to replace that with tax revenue that is being charged from residents will always be politically difficult um and her point raises the uh the concern that that might also extend to other you know non residential forms of the economy and commercial forms of the economy um and i do think that um i do think it is possible she asked you know is it possible for small towns to improve service delivery and self finance without formalization 
I think as it stands now, yes, because a lot of the most important forms of taxes, such as the property tax, don't necessarily, I mean, the rates are so low of collection that it's not just because the, you know, even from the, even from the assessed tax, the ratio of collected tax is very little. So even on formal properties where the tax is being assessed, it's not being collected. So that's just one indicator. Um, and I think, you know, just to Dr. Hale made a, I mean, sorry, uh, uh, Mr. Hale made a lot of great points and um, as did, uh, um, as did uh, Dr. Devapriya. And so I can't respond to all of them. Um, I will totally agree, uh, uh, Dr. Devapriya, with your point that there are many different tools that at which there's encroachment on the power of urban local bodies. You mentioned the BSF as one for the specific town that you worked in. Obviously, that'll be more relevant in certain areas. Uh, but overall, including the points that Dr. Rahale made, I think of uh, the mission-centric uh, focus. I mean, missions in many ways can be productive, but they also, there's a tension here between uh, the centralizing imperatives of missions, because missions are often, and small town governments themselves, often these elected officials are not always very happy with the missions because they are not given a lot of power other than implementing missions. They are not really given a lot of power in, um, so there's a tension between saying we want to decentralize authority, but then having a very mission-centric centralized approach. And uh, you know, both have pluses and minuses. I, I should say that none, nothing of what I'm saying, I want to be very clear that there are two points I'm not making. One, I'm not making an argument. In fact, it's the opposite. So when Dr. Nari said pessimism, I don't think of this as particularly pessimistic in some ways, which is that we are not pessimistic about the councillors themselves. If anything, we're saying the tendency, including by state governments, is to paint these actors as corrupt or apathetic. We actually find these councillors work very hard. If you go and visit them, they have residents coming to them every day, but the work that they're doing is problem solving ad hoc. Somebody's light has gone, somebody's road needs repair, some safari needs to be done. So most of their effort, although they're working very hard, it's directed in this ad hoc reactive mode. What they are not doing is doing the proactive planning um, and uh, kind of mandated responsibilities that they have, they have to uh, kind of fulfill. And there, I think, while yes, I completely agree, and I've, we've said this is a study of Rajasthan, we are going very deep because, frankly, the data on these places doesn't exist. We would need to replicate what we are doing across 20, you know, across all Indian states to get that picture. But even if you just look at some of the available statistics, this is not a Rajasthan-centered problem. Even a state like Maharashtra, the revenue-raising capacities of these towns, in fact, Maharashtra is on the higher end, but it's still only about 60% of uh, revenues are coming from own sources. And that's one of the highest in India. And overall, most states in India look like Rajasthan, where a very small percentage um, of their own so revenue sources are coming from within. So the reasons may be specific to states, but the problem is, a, I think we can, we can agree, is one that at least afflicts the majority of states, which is that uh, we, we, we should shy away from generalizations as much as possible, except when there are some broad truths that emerge. And from the limited, again, more data is needed, better data is needed. Um, but to the degree that we know something that is affecting small towns across most Indian states, it is that they are resource strapped. And often the problem that we are saying is that this could end up being an argument against decentralization, which is not what we are saying. But what we are worried about is that because these towns are both not la lacking in resources, and because these elected officials uh, often don't know their responsibilities. We might look at them and say they are ineffective and therefore we should take power away from these governments. And what we are saying is they are not really being given a fully fair chance. And a fully fair chance does not mean just give them more and more responsibility. 
that is not going to do very much if the actors you are giving more and more responsibility to do not know the responsibilities they've already been given. So even the few responsibilities they've been given, they don't know about. They're basically being told to collect one major tax and half of them don't even know to collect that tax. And incidentally, the timing of the election, I don't think matters. This was you know, taken a year to two years after the election. But first of all, one or two years into a five-year term, that's half your time. But secondly, even if we look at people who previously contested elections, even they still don't know. So even multiple cycles, the knowledge does not update. And so I think we have to look at something that is more systematic. And what our point is that if they cannot even dispense with the few duties they've already been given, then shoving more duties onto them will become, I don't think, very effective and in fact end up becoming an argument against giving these bodies power and move to a more centralizing, perhaps mission mode style of governance and without ever having truly tested decentralization. So we believe a lot in the theory of decentralization, but the practice of decentralization in small towns, different from in villages in India, or even to some extent, bigger cities. I think in small towns, the decentralization experiment has been uh, in some ways implemented the weakest. And so uh, we are just pointing to one nugget, uh, the information of these uh, of officials as one piece of the story, certainly not the whole story, uh, but I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you so much for, for uh, the audience and for everyone for participating and for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tariq. You rightly uh, just highlighted the importance of the distinction between de jure decentralization and de facto decentralization. The true local autonomy to make decisions and to implement them is what we lacking in most of the Indian cities today. So uh, since we are uh, running late on time, uh, uh, this discussion has been really engaging and we could have take it forward. But uh, we hope to hear more from your research in the near future as well. So it's very interesting. The, uh, these uh, findings are really interesting. So uh, just before uh, formally ending this, may I now request uh, uh, Dr. Simi Mehta, who is the CEO of IMPRI, to formally uh, present this vote of thanks. It's over to you, Dr. Simi. Yes, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Somadeep. It has really been very enriching and uh, um, actually learned a lot. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Tariq, for uh, your um, enriching lecture. I would like to propose the formal vote of thanks on behalf of the IMPRI Center for Habitat, Urban and Regional Studies uh, to our uh, speaker, uh, Dr. Tariq Tachil. Thank you, sir, for joining us this morning uh, from the uh, United States and for presenting your research, which is very, very insightful. And we wish you all the best for your continuing research on this. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank our discussants, Mr. Samir Unhale and Dr. Devapriya Chakravarti. Thank you, uh, sir and ma'am, for your time and for your um, very, very insightful inputs. And uh, thank you so much to our moderator, Dr. Somedeep, uh, for, uh, for taking this program ahead and for moderating and leading this program uh, so successfully. So thank you so much. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank our attendees here on Zoom and all those who are watching us uh, live on Facebook and to all those who will be watching us later on uh, YouTube and listening to the program on our different podcasts. So thank you so much and I wish you all a very good day. Thank you. 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 Thank